0: to open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 2. The passage that we have before us this morning is one of the more familiar stories that I'm sure that you all know, uh, because it comes up during every Christmas season. Uh, it' be nice if it was Christmas. <laughs> But uh, nevertheless, I would like to read from verse 1 in the account of the wise men coming to seek the one who has been born the king of the Jews. Matthew 2, one it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them whether Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem. In the land of Judah, and not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. I really appreciated Justin's testimony that he gave, I think it was about two months ago. I thought I knew his testimony already. But then he brought in so many other aspects that I was not fully aware of. I was particularly interested in the fact that Justin was previously brought up in a strict Catholic home, and yet his Catholic beliefs provided the framework for him to understand some of the basic Christian doctrines. Uh, Now, of course, a Catholic salvation is ultimately a work salvation. And yet, there is some truth in their doctrines. Uh, There's truth about man, and sin, and God, and Jesus' sacrifice, and many other things. I mean, there's no question, of course, uh, that they are theologically flawed. And yet, the experiences of someone like Justin growing up with that religion is an illustration of the principle that we considered together last time. It's the fact that every person's testimony is really the story of the mystery of the working of God in their life. God begins with people where they are. And sometimes he uses crooked pathways to bring them from the imperfection of their understanding to the perfect light of the gospel. Justin started with Catholic traditions and beliefs and made friends with someone who was also searching. And then somehow he ended up in England, where he connected with these evangelical Anglicans of all people and came to faith in Christ. Clearly, it was the work of God in his life. Now, we have another remarkable example of this kind of thing in the case of these Magi in Matthew 2. That's where we explored this principle last time. We examined these men, and we came to see how God was working in their lives. In the first place, these men, in verse 1, were astrologers. They were from the Far East, probably Babylon or ancient Persia. They were wise counselors in their day. We went over all of that last time. These were also men who studied the stars. Uh, It was a very primitive kind of astronomy, really more like our astrology, because the people of their day presumed that you could predict the future by looking at the stars, something that astrologers do today. And yet God used that background, and in that context, he showed them something that was unique out there in the heavens. It was a star that they'd never seen before, and clearly a revelation from God. It was put out there to grab their attention, and it tapped into something that they had heard or read in their background, that told them of the coming of the King of the Jews. Now, last time we looked at the possibilities for how they might have received that information. It might have been additional divine revelation in a dream. God works through dreams in these infancy narratives. It may have been that God sent them an angelic messenger, as he did for Mary and Joseph, or it may have been that they had an encounter with the scriptures due to the fact that the Jews had been exiled in Babylon so many hundreds of years earlier. But whatever it was, it was in addition to that heavenly body hanging out there, the one that originally got their attention, and it led to them traveling east into the land of Israel. Now, isn't it interesting that once they arrived in Jerusalem, God did not lead them straight to Bethlehem by that star. They only got so far. And at that point, they needed some help. So what we have in this story, I think, is a wonderful illustration of some of the ways in which God leads people to the true facts of the gospel or the facts about the Messiah. What got them started was the star. What communicated to them the significance of that star we don't exactly know but it's another means and it led them to the belief that the king of the Jews had been born and this star was indicating that. Well, now they arrive in the one place where the information for the Precise geographical location of the Messiah's birth would be available. And as they inquire and the answer is given, then we have this further example of how God makes known the facts of the gospel to people. So I want to preach to you this morning on God making known the facts of his Messiah or the divinely led journey. Of the wise men to the gospel. Because, remember, the Messiah Himself is the gospel. Or the good news. So, this is sort of part two to the last message we had in Matthew. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. In the first place, I want you to notice how the sentence is structured. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Now think about that. Notice that they assume that someone in that city will make known to them the location of the Messiah's birth. I mean, they come asking the question, assuming that someone will have the answer for them. So what does that imply for us? It implies that God very often does work through other people. I mean, that's what they were asking for. Someone who knows the answer. In fact, this is really the primary thing the Holy Spirit has chosen to tell us about these magi. Last time, I tried to give enough background context so that we could understand something about God's working in their lives. But the fact is, a lot of what I told you about the Magi is not what God tells us here. Because it really isn't his purpose to tell us those details in the story. But the one thing he does tell us is that when they came, they came asking. In fact, that whole first sentence is a question. It ends in verse 2. It's all a question. So what God wanted you to read primarily was their question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Why? Because he's conveying the fact that he uses other people to pass on the facts of the gospel. And what is really significant here is that their question actually starts others on the same search. You can see that after they ask it in verse 3, Herod the king is troubled by it, so in verse 4, he gathers all the chief priests and scribes. Now he's asking the question. Everybody's asking the question. When we heard Lee Boland's testimony a couple of months ago, he related that he had questions that were raised in a conversation with my dad. Questions that came to be answered in the course of time. Maybe you were faced with questions when somebody came to your door and asked if you were sure of where you would go when you died. Well, the intention of God in those kinds of encounters is certainly so that you will continue to ask questions that lead you to the truth. It's a modern day parallel to what you see in this passage. So that's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. Don't live and die without ever asking these crucial questions. Your life is pointless. It will prove to be futile if you don't get serious in your search for answers to questions about this individual. Where can you find him? What has God revealed about what He does for people like us? Who is he really? Why was he born? Why did he die? If you've never really gone over these questions in your mind, then take this application for what it is. And if there's nothing else that comes out of this service for you, then walk away at least asking the same question that these magi asked. Where is he? If there is a God in heaven, if He has provided for the needs of mankind through His Son, then where is He? How is He to be found? Don't take it for granted that because you grew up in a Christian household and you went to Sunday school all of your life and children's church, that you know the right answer to these questions. You know, this current generation needs to be no longer enamored with the trivial pursuits of this life, Uh, the latest tech, the coolest fashion, the hottest movie trends, the most watched influencers and so on. Stop spending so much time turning those things over and over in your mind and get to the real questions about life and about death. About your place in eternity. You might think you'll live forever, young people. Let me tell you something you will live somewhere forever. And no amount of technology will save you then. Now, God leads to the answers in many strange ways. He may use Catholicism to get you started, like Justin, he may use a cult, like the Mormons to get you further down the road. But he will also use the right kind of knowledgeable people. I mean, these men assume that of all people, the Jews themselves in their capital city, well, they have to know the answers. And then Herod assumes, look at verse 4 again, that of all the people in his city, who should really know the answers? Well, this illustrates a second point about how God makes known the facts of the Gospel. He sometimes does it through ordinary people, just asking questions of ordinary people. But you would assume, like Herod did, that God would primarily use religious leaders. You see that in verse 4? He gathers all the chief priests and scribes of the people together because these were the people who were professionally trained. So in Herod's opinion, at least, they were the most likely to have these facts on hand. The priests, of course, served in the temple, which Herod himself was building for political purposes. The scribes studied the law of Moses. But you could really parallel that today to someone going to pastors, or theologians, or reading books by well-known Christian authors while looking for the answers to their questions about the gospel. But having established that, I do want to say as a pastor myself, that not all pastors are safe guides. Not all theologians will give you the right answers. Not all books will lead you down the right path. I mean, anyone here today should be able to go to any pastor or someone who uh, is professionally trained in the Scriptures or even a reputable Christian website and get the right answers. We should be able to do that. But Jesus Himself warned of what He called blind guides of the blind. He said that when blind people or people who don't have the facts, but, but they want to be led, when people like that choose as their leader a guide who is Himself visually impaired, both of them will fall into a ditch. And in this case, the ditch is the most serious consequence of all because the ditch here is eternity. Following the blind will lead into an eternity with all of the wrong answers about how to present yourself before God. You know, I've had questions asked and conversations had with people, uh, and they'll bring out you know the name of a well-known pastor. Uh, they'll mention a book written by theologians and Christian leaders, and quite often they're very excited about what they've heard, about what they've read, and they want to know, have you heard of this guy before? Most of the time I haven't, <laughs> to be quite honest. Sometimes I have. Uh, Like the time I was asked if I knew about a particular pastor from the Philippines. And I'd never heard of this guy, uh, but this lady was so excited about his teachings. And so I went to a very reliable source, Google, and I read up on this guy, and I read some of his quotes, and I listened to some of his stuff, and it was obvious that he was seriously misrepresenting the true facts of what the Bible teaches, about salvation from sin. As a consequence, I ended up in a a debate, which is a Christian word for argument, with this woman over the teachings that she took as gospel truth from this man, but it clearly did not line up with Scripture. And who was I to disagree with the pastor of thousands, right? I think one of the saddest cases of this happened in the life of Helen Keller. Keller of course, was blind, uh, deaf, and dumb, and she didn't learn to communicate until Ann Sullivan uh, taught her sign language at the age of seven. Well, when she was 11 years old, her father was concerned that she learn about God. You can imagine being uh, blind, being deaf, unable to talk. How do you teach someone like that about the existence of God? Well, her father took her to see the Boston minister, uh, Bishop Phillips Brooks, who was pastor of the Trinity Episcopal Church at the time. Brooks had a wife who was deaf. And uh, they had no children, but they had a great love for children. So they spent some time signing to Helen and telling her about the existence of God. Well, Keller responded with something that is, a, I think, a remarkable illustration of the consciousness that God has placed in the human being regarding his own existence. She became very excited. She immediately signed back and said, I always knew he existed. I just didn't know what he was called. It was her response to learning about God. But unfortunately, Brooks was quite liberal in his theology. It's really... Uh, One of those great enigmas in church history because he understood a lot about preaching. He was a well known preacher. He wrote a very famous book on preaching, a classic today called The Joy of Preaching. But his central message theologically was that all people are the children of God. He taught universalism. Well, Keller wrote a book herself in 1927, uh, nearly a quarter century after Brooks died. It was entitled, My Religion. And in it, she had embraced the teachings of a strange philosopher named Immanuel Swedenborg, who taught that as long as you do good according to the truth of your religion, whatever that religion is, God will accept you in heaven. And so Keller died believing the wrong facts about redemption because Brooks was not a safe guide. He only took her part of the way because his own orthodoxy was flawed. Now that does raise a question for us I think. How would you know if a religious leader is safe? I mean we're talking about your soul here. We're talking about eternity here. It's perhaps your first encounter with God. So when you go looking for the facts how would you know if the religious authority you're asking is safe. In this country alone, there are some 10,000 churches. And we have a small population. Go to the UK, you'll find 16,000 churches. Go to America, get lost in the 380,000 churches you'll find there. So which ones are safe? I mean, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of pulpits. Lots of denominational groups characterized by many different teachings. So who is safe if you're looking for the answers regarding your entrance into the presence of God? I mean, there are nearly limitless possibilities out there. And that brings me to the final way the passage illustrates how God brings people to the facts about the Messiah and their salvation through Him. These chief priests and scribes, regardless of who they were and whether or not they were true believers, they did have access to the scriptures. And so in verse 5, they immediately respond by saying to him, Well, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea, because this is written by the prophet. In other words, they go to the what? They go to the Bible. They go to the Scriptures. They go to the prophets. They go to the Word of God that you have in your hands this morning. Sometimes people move away from Sydney uh, or they are coming to live in Australia and they want to know how to find a good church to attend. I always say, well, our church, of course. But, but if they can't do that. You know, What's a safe place to go? Who, to whom... Can I entrust myself and my family? And the first thing I always say to them is this, when you look for a church, look look at what they do with the Bible. Are they carrying a Bible? Are they opening a Bible, or at least a Bible app, during the service? In other words, is the Bible important to those people? You always want to find a place where people open their Bibles, and when the preacher opens the Bible, he reads from it, and he sticks to it. He takes people through a passage in the Bible. He explains what it says. He justifies these explanations by turning to other passages of Scripture. In other words, everything is really centered on that Bible, Now, someone says, yes, but isn't that that worshiping the Bible? I mean, aren't you bibliolaters? Well, that is a valid question. Because uh, as Christians, you know, we certainly do elevate this book above everything else that people will ever read. So why is that? Well, I want to show you that by having you turn to Peter's second letter and asking, Josh, if you put the blind down, please. I'm getting blinded up here. Getting extra spotlight. Glenn, it's your car. Sorry, brother. (laughs) All right, 2 Peter. This passage really is one of two critical passages in the New Testament that every Christian should know how to find and explain. In 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, we are told why we should give so much significance to the Bible. Why do we keep quoting the Bible? Why do we keep explaining the Bible? Well, here is the answer. Verse 20. Knowing this first. First of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. So there's no statement of Scripture that is the result of a writer's own personal viewpoint. In other words, it's not that Moses had a view of God and he wrote about his view, but you, know, you really want Jesus' view of God. That's really the important thing. You know, go, go with Jesus, don't go with Moses. Okay. And then you've got the apostles, right? And people say, well, Paul had his views, Peter had his views, there's some contradictions between the two, but you know, they're both followers of Jesus. No. That is a total misrepresentation of what the Bible itself says. It says that nothing found in Scripture comes from people's own interpretation, meaning their own viewpoint. It's not how Scripture came about. Verse 21: this is how Scripture originated, for prophecy never came by the will of men. Notice that universal negative. It never came in that way. Categorically denying that. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So how did the Scriptures come into being? Men wrote them, yes, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit so their source was God Himself. They spoke from God. The other passage, of course, that every believer needs to know is 2 Timothy what? 2 Timothy 3.16. And that just fills in the information that all of Scripture is actually breathed out by God, inspired by God Himself. So He is the original source of it. And therefore, it goes on to say it's profitable for our lives. Now, I want to take you back to Matthew and look at what Matthew is doing here. Going to go a little deeper with this. Here's a man who put a book in the Bible. And somebody says, Well, yes, that's his view of God. No, because nothing in the scripture is of anybody's private interpretation. None of them simply wrote from their own will. What they wrote was from God. And in this first gospel, notice what the Holy Spirit did through Matthew. Look again at verse 5 in the last line. For thus it is written by the prophet. Look at verse 15. uh, That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. Look at verse 23. When the Lord uh, took up His residence in Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. What does the Holy Spirit keep doing in this chapter? He keeps referring the reader back to other Scriptures. In other words, Matthew lists these various places where the Messiah was born, then lived in Egypt... Uh, his connection with this great weeping in a place called Rama, after which he returned to Israel and lived in Nazareth. And how do you explain all of that kind of strange itinerary? Well, this is what was written by the prophet, by the prophet, by the prophets. In other words, the Holy Spirit keeps justifying what he's revealing about those specific places in terms of Scripture. And he's going to do this all the way through the book. In fact, you basically have over a hundred times in this gospel when Matthew quotes from the Old Testament, or at least alludes to Old Testament scripture, in order to justify what's going on in the life of the Messiah. Over a hundred times. In other words, look at this particular quote now in verse 6. And. What, I'm, what I want you to do now is really turn to the Old Testament prophet from which it's being taken. What I want to do here is compare that wording with the New Testament wording. and I want you to see something. Turn to the Old Testament prophet of Micah. Let's go back to Micah 5. But keep a finger in Matthew 2, uh, which uh, is saying that Micah 5 is being fulfilled right here. So let's read the whole prediction first of all. Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah. That's a word that means fruitful. You, Bethlehem, a fruitful little village. All right. Though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now, when you compare that wording with Matthew, it becomes obvious that they're not identical. Okay? For example, let's look at it. The first line Micah 5:2, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah. Matthew 2:6 says, "But you Bethlehem in the land of Judah." So Micah says Ephrathah, Matthew entirely omits that. He says land of Judah. Okay? Second line, Matthew says, "are not the least among the rulers of Judah." Micah says, "though you are little among the thousands, of Judah. And then the third line in Micah says, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Matthew says, for out of you shall come a ruler. And the last line says, who will shepherd my people Israel, which is probably taken from verse 4 in Micah 5. He shall stand and feed his flock. Now, I did that little comparison exercise with you because I want to make this point. A moment ago, I said that you can trust a spiritual leader, a pastor, theologian, professor, a book they wrote, if they point you to the Scriptures. We just went to the Bible and we saw that Matthew is pointing to the Scriptures. You see that? He's quoting the Bible. But when I go back and look at what he's quoting, they're not exactly the same. So, what's up with that? I mean, is Matthew himself even a reliable source? You see what I'm asking? You know, this probably has never occurred to you before, but this really is one of the reasons why some people totally dismiss Matthew as a credible source of information. I mean, if the guy keeps pointing to the prophets, but then he doesn't even quote them properly, how can you really trust what he's quoting? I want to give you two possibilities to explain this alleged problem. Number one, going back to what 2 Peter 1 says, because the whole Bible actually has its source, not in human writers, but is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes in your New Testament... The Holy Spirit will breathe out Scripture that quotes other Scripture, but He only extracts from that Scripture that point that needs to be made in that New Testament passage. In fact, He may dismiss some of the quote because it's not needed in that particular context. But that's okay because it's all God-breathed anyway he might also quote the Scripture in such a way that he's only giving you the meaning and intention of the original words rather than giving you a direct word-for-word quote. So although you don't have the exact original wording, you do have the teaching that was intended by the Holy Spirit when he gave those words. Now before you say he can't do that, let me tell you, you do it all the time. Uh, for example, I might say to my son, Aiden, go to Livy. She needs to pick up her clothes from the floor. She needs to put away her stuff. She needs to vacuum the room. All right, Aiden is probably not going to quote verbatim to Livy. But he might say, hey, dad said clean up your room. All right. Well, I never said that. I said pick up your clothes, put away your stuff. Vacuum the floor. Do I now punish Aiden for giving a wrong representation of what I said? Of course not. Because he carried the very intention of my message to my daughter. Now, that's a very simple illustration, but that could be the point in Matthew's quote here. Because the primary issue is this, right? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? All right, is there any scripture that tells us where that ruler is going to be born? Yes. And looking at the way it's quoted in verse 6, you can see that it's possible that the Holy Spirit has just extracted the answer to the question without giving the exact wording of Micah 5.2. That is a highly possible explanation. But secondly, here's another possibility. It's possible that the Holy Spirit is recording the answer exactly as the scribes gave it. That's what the scribes said. And they lift some of it out. But in either case, it is a reliable source of the information that we find in Micah 5.2. I don't think we, we need to doubt that. So let's go through this prophecy then and see what it says very quickly. This prophecy identifies the birthplace of the most significant person in all of human history... And when it does, you're surprised by the location, if you know anything at all, about Israel and its cities. I mean, this has to be one of the most unlikely of all locations for this great figure to come from. Of course, everybody knows the name of Bethlehem today, right? It's part of the West Bank. It's part of the land that was partitioned off by the United Nations. Uh, It was given to Jordan, the nation of Jordan, in 1948. In 1967, when some of the Arab nations went to war with Israel and tried to take some of their land, Israel actually won the territory back. But in 1995, they gave the authority of the city to the newly formed Palestinian National Authority as part of a peace agreement involving the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and so Uh, Muslim Arabs primarily occupy it today. Uh, Perhaps you remember the uh, problem that happened in uh, 2002. There was a conflict, and uh, dozens of Palestinian militants hold themselves up in the Church of the Nativity, which is, of course, the one thing every tourist wants to see. And Israeli soldiers from the IDF blockaded the whole thing. And dozens of people died in the gunfighting went on for weeks. Um, finally, they reached an agreement, and uh, they agreed to exile the militants rather than have them executed. So we all know about Bethlehem, and it's quite a hot spot to this very day. But I want to tell you that in Old Testament days, hardly anyone knew anything about Bethlehem. In fact, it was so small, it wasn't even recorded in passages like Joshua 15 On Nehemiah 11, which recounts the families in Israel and all of their hereditary dwellings. Bethlehem is nowhere to be found in these lists because it was one of the least among all the clans and the places of Israel. That's what Micah 5 was saying. However, in spite of the unlikeliness of this place being the birthplace of the Messiah, because of the prophecy in Micah 5.2, by the first century, it had become well-known, which is why these Jewish scholars knew that Bethlehem was destined to be the birthplace of their future king. Now, if you go back to that prophecy then, what I'm interested in is pointing out to you two things. The first is the purpose for which that prophecy said that the king would come. All right, let's look at it. Verse 2 again. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. I mean, you're not even included in the list, right? Joshua 15, Nehemiah 11, and so on. You don't even get the cut for that. Yet, contrary to all your expectations, out of you shall come forth, now look at this phrase, to me. Meaning, on my behalf. Or from me, that's God speaking, out of you, Bethlehem, shall come forth on my behalf the one to be the ruler in Israel. That prophecy specifies the purpose for the coming of the Messiah in Bethlehem. It was so that he would be a ruler on God's behalf. In other words, his would not be a self serving reign, as has been the case with nearly every king or queen in history. No, this one would be there as a representative of the Lord God of heaven and earth. We rejoice in the birth of a Savior. God the Father rejoices in the birth of His ruler. The second thing I want you to notice is in the last two lines of verse 2. These lines are not found in Matthew's quote, which we already noted. But at the end of that prophecy in verse 2, he writes, "...whose goings forth are from of old or long ago." Now think for a moment, that doesn't make any medical sense. Because the gestation period for a human child is normally nine months. Okay? But in this case, he's from everlasting his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now, did anyone in that day have spiritual eyes to see who that has to be referring to? I mean, if you're, if you're talking about someone who stretches back in his existence to eternity past, I'm telling you, this is no ordinary man. His goings forth is a reference to his activities. From old is a phrase that refers to ancient times and it's qualified beyond any misunderstanding when you have the addition of the phrase which literally says, from the days of eternity. Psalm 45 makes the same point when the author writes in verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Well, that sounds a lot like eternity to me. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, now listen to this. God, your God, has anointed you. Did you catch that? Let me point it out to you. It's it's your throne, O God. Therefore, your God has anointed you. He's clearly speaking of two persons. Both of whom are referred to as God. Isn't that cool? It's exactly why this is quoted in Hebrews 1, where the writer is comparing the glory of God's Son with the glory of angelic beings, and he asks, well, to which of the angels did God ever say, your throne, O God, is forever and ever? To which of the angels did God refer to as Himself, yet He's clearly referring to another person? did any Jew in the first century when Jesus was born have eyes to see the true identity of the Messiah when He came? Did they realize, did they understand that His goings forth would have been from old, even from the days of eternity? In other words, did any Jew figure out that He would be the eternal God Himself? We often quote, Isaiah 9.6, Christmas time. Say it with me. You know the verse, right? How does it go? Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. Listen to that again. A child is born, dot, 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 the Mighty God. Micah 5.2 clearly is teaching the pre-existence of the Messiah who was born in Bethlehem. We began this message with the question, how would you know when God reveals the true facts of the good news that he has for people? How would you know? That's what people want to know today. How, how are you going to know this? All right, You say, well, I might do what the Magi did. I might just ask other people. I'll check in with them. Well, that's a good place to start. Someone else says yes, and I suggest that you ask religious people. You ask the professionals, people who've studied those answers. That's another good place to start. But your safety only lies in going to someone, whether a theologian or a common Christian or a Christian author, but someone who's going to point you to what? The Scriptures. What the Scriptures tell you. Now, of course... You may not believe the Scriptures, (laughs) you may doubt them, but you cannot doubt what they actually say. They say that God would send someone to be born, but that the baby himself would be God. They say that the Messiah would be an eternal son of an eternal father, and that this is the good news about this person. It's the fact that He's not merely a man. He's not the religious founder of some movement like other founders of religious movements. It's the fact that He Himself is the God of heaven from all eternity who will have a future eternal throne. He is the King of the Jews. He is a ruler on God the Father's behalf among all the nations. This is the answer from Scripture. And this is enough for us. It is enough for us to be guided to the Bible. My friend, do you own a Bible? Do you read the Bible? The most important thing you could determine to do this morning would be to give the rest of your life to an earnest search in finding out who God is. And how He saves sinful mankind, including yourself. The answers are in the Bible. Go and investigate what it says. And God Himself promises that if you'll do this with an honest, open heart, He will convince you. He promises that you will know whether the teaching of the Scripture is true. One of the carols that we sing at Christmas is uh, the one, A Little, Little Town of Bethlehem. You know that one? It's authored by none other than the man who took Helen Keller on her spiritual journey, Phillips Brooks. But I think you'll find that Brooks wrote better than he believed. Because what he wrote here is based on Scripture's teaching. And I want to read to you the last stanza. I should have asked that we sing it at the end. but It says, O holy child of Bethlehem, Descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin. That's what He came to do. And enter in. That's what He promises to do. Live in our heart. Be born in us today. And that's what He came to give. right Eternal life to those who embrace Him as their Savior. And the last line says this, O oh, come to us, Abide with us, our Lord. Now, what's the last word? Our Lord, Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. This child is Emmanuel, which is what Isaiah 7.14 predicted, another Old Testament prophecy. So, if you know the Lord this morning, this carol is a testimony of what you believe. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, you're playing with religion. You're borrowing your parents' religion. You're pretending to be a Christian so other Christians will accept you. And please give some thought to these words. And let the truth of the Scripture engage your heart and your mind as you look for the answer as to where God's salvation is truly revealed. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us a reliable source of truth on how to find Your Son, how to relate to Him, how to love Him and serve Him, how to live as His children. Father, help us to follow Your Word without hesitation, but be faithful disciples. And we love You for sending Your Son What a blessed thing it is. And we pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, that they would embrace him as their Savior even today. In Jesus' name.